Open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 25, which is where we're going to pick up today. We're closing in on the, the end of the, the, the Acts of the Apostle, the birth of the church. There's a lot of ways you could characterize the book of, uh, of Acts, the work of Luke and Luke-Acts. Last week, as we wrapped up Paul's trial before Felix, what we saw was is that Felix lacked sufficient evidence, really, to convict Paul of anything. But as a favor to the Jews, and in order to keep peace in Jerusalem, he kept Paul locked up for two years. That was the remainder of his term as the governor of Judea, stationed there in Caesarea. At the end of the two years, a man by the name of Festus took over that role. And in chapter 25, verse 1, what we're told is, is that when Festus assumes his position, he immediately makes a trip to Jerusalem. And that's because Jerusalem, where the Jews was, was a source of turmoil. So he immediately goes there to make sure that all is well with the Jewish people there, that they're not on the verge of, of any uprising or anything. He wanted to ensure peace in Judea. Now, as he talks to the Jews there, even though two years has elapsed, they still want a crack at Paul. They want to eliminate Paul. And so they request that Festus bring uh, Paul to Jerusalem so that he can stand trial there. And Festus tells him, if you have any charges against Paul, then you bring them to Caesarea and we'll try him there. So they follow Festus to Caesarea. They brought numerous civil charges, but they were unable to prove anything against the Apostle Paul. And Festus, in hearing these things, understands clearly that the matter, the, the, the differences that they have with the Apostle Paul are purely of a religious nature. And so he asked Paul at this point, he says, would you be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there? And Paul wants absolutely no part of going into the territory of the religious leaders because he knows that they want only to eliminate them. So he, he tells Festus, I'm standing in Caesar's court a, a, before a man appointed by Caesar. The only other court that I'm going to go to is the court in Rome to Caesar himself. So Festus says, okay, if that's the way you want it. He was a Roman citizen. He had that right. But Festus has a problem when Paul makes this claim to Caesar's court. If he's to send Paul to Rome to stand trial there, he's got to have a reason. When Paul goes to Rome, Festus needed to include, along with those going there, a written report detailing the circumstances of his offense, why he was arrested, why the matter could not be dealt with locally. I mean, that's his job, is to deal with these local matters so they don't get appealed. To Rome. So why was the appeal being made to Rome? He had to explain why the matter required Caesar's attention. So in verse 13, we read of the arrival of King Agrippa and Bernice, King Agrippa. And, and once again, a little bit of historical background goes a long way here. King Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa II that we're reading of here in chapter 25. This is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who is the client king of Rome, ruling in Judea, ruling from Jerusalem when Jesus was born. He was the king to whom 
the Magi, the wise men from the east appeared and told, we've seen a star that indicates a child has been born who will one day be king of the Jews. Herod was threatened by this news that they brought. So he told them, whenever you find the child, come back and share with me where he is so that I can go and worship him as the wise men were headed to worship him. He wanted only to eliminate the child. When the Magi failed to return and tell him where to find this newborn king of the Jews, Herod ordered the murder of all the male children two years of age and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem in an effort to ensure that there would be no threat to his rule or the rule of any of his descendants, his family. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his sons with Herod Antipas ruling in Galilee. And Matthew 14 tells us that Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, we read of Herod the Great's great-grandson, Herod Agrippa I. He was the one who had the apostle James executed and imprisoned Peter briefly. The King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, the one we read of today, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, is one whose power has been diminished greatly, is reduced dramatically compared to that of his, his great-grandfather, but he still retains the title of king, and he still retains some degree of authority. Festus needed some help in formulating charges against Paul that would warrant him sending Paul to Rome because Agrippa was Jewish, because he had credibility with Rome. Festus was hoping that Agrippa could help him clarify what was going on between the Jewish leaders and Paul and clarify it into something hopefully civil that was a charge he could send Paul to Rome with. Verse 23 says this, The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the, the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So again, it's important to get the scene in mind. Bernice was Agrippa's sister, but she was treated like a queen. So Agrippa and Bernice, dressed in their finest robes are ushered into a meeting room with all the formality of a king and a queen, all that a king and a queen would deserve. They're accompanied by the leading military commanders. These would have been the leaders, the commanders of the five cohorts. These were groups of a thousand soldiers, five thousand soldiers, five commanders of a thousand apiece that are stationed there in Caesarea. So those military commanders in all of their dress uniform come in with Bernice and Agrippa. Agrippa and Bernice would have been seated on seats that would look like thrones, raised seats right beside Festus, the ruler there in Caesarea, appointed by Rome. And, and, and along with these military commanders, it says, in attendance were the prominent leaders. And so all of the prominent civil leaders in Caesarea were a part of this gathering. And when everyone was in place, Paul was brought in. In the midst of all of this regality, he stands. A man that one first century writer described as of small stature with meeting 
eyebrows, a bald head, bow-legged, strongly built, hollow-eyed, a large, crooked nose, not a particularly large guy, balding with a prominent nose, clothed in a plain robe, standing before Rome's governor and the commanders of Rome's military might, confronting as well a king whose ancestors had endeavored at every opportunity to silence the gospel. Verse 25 says, Festus begins the hearing. King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. And with that, chapter 26, verse 1, King Agrippa gave permission to Paul to make his defense. Paul begins by honoring Agrippa. I'm fortunate to have this opportunity. He appeals to Agrippa's knowledge of Judaism. He appeals to Agrippa's patience. He then details his youth and how he was raised to conform to the practice of the Pharisees, the leading Jewish religious party. We've talked about Sadducees and Pharisees. There were two religious parties, but the Sadducees were clearly in the minority. They, they held on, because of their political connections, to the, to the chief priesthood, but they were the minority party. Far and away, the stronger party, the majority party, were the, were the Pharisees. And Paul was a member of that party. The Pharisees were the ones that believed devoutly in the resurrection of the dead as a promise of God from the law and the prophets. In verse 8, Paul says, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul speaks here to Agrippa and to Bernice and to any of the leading men of the city who are Jewish and, and believe what the prophets had said of a coming Messiah. He said, if you believe what the prophets said, how could you not believe? How could you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In verse 9 through 11, Paul shares how he diligently, as a member of the party of the Pharisees, persecuted the followers of Jesus and sought to destroy the church. And in verse 12, Paul says, on one of these journeys, as I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharpened staff that was used to urge oxen and donkeys along the path. So to kick against the goad would be to refuse to go in the direction that the shepherd was indicating you go. Paul continues, Then I asked, 
Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. And in verse 18, Paul states the very essence and the power of the gospel. He said that the reality of Jesus in the lives of people changes them, that they see clearly right and wrong when they realize Jesus, when Jesus comes into their life, they understand, they see right and wrong clearly. They see good and evil. Those things are delineated in ways that they were not before. It is as if their eyes have been closed, but now their eyes are open, seeing clearly right and wrong, good and evil, seeing these things delineated so clearly. They turn from evil to good. They turn from darkness to light. They turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. Their lives are changed dramatically. Paul put it this way in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, as he wrote to the Christians at Galatia of, of what this change should look like. He told them, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh desires what's against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's against the flesh. They're opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The works of the flesh are, are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell, I, I, I tell you about these things in advance, as I've told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are people that are still under the power of Satan. These are people that do not see Clearly, right and wrong, good and evil. These are people that are still in bondage to the evil. They've not turned from darkness to light. They've not turned from the power of Satan to the power of God. And it's seen in the way that they live their lives. In verse 24, he said, Now that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. He says, this is the way that those whose eyes have been opened live their lives. This is what it looks like when one turns from darkness to light, when one turns from the power of Satan to the power of God, and they live this life by the power of the Spirit within them. This is the radical change of which Paul speaks as he addresses Agrippa here in the book of Acts. Paul said that this was why God 
saved him and sent him to share the good news so that others might have the opportunity to experience this clarity of understanding of right and wrong, that they might have the opportunity to choose to follow Jesus, that they might, by the power of the Spirit of God, have their sins forgiven, that they could turn from the power of Satan and follow Jesus. Paul says, this is why he called me, and this is what he sent me to share. Paul's been speaking to Agrippa, but clearly he's including everyone else gathered. Once again, he he addresses Agrippa directly, and and he tells him, confronted and commissioned by a living Jesus, I did the only thing that I could possibly do. I was obedient to God. I shared with everyone that I had the opportunity to share. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by the deeds of their life. And then in verse 21, he summarizes his defense. He said, that's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and then to the Gentiles. Paul appeals once again to that which the Pharisees know and say they believe. The only difference is is that Paul is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke of, and he's claiming that Jesus has risen from the dead as proof that he's the Messiah. In verse 24, Festus is heard, and uh, he accuses Paul of being insane. Paul responds, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. He's speaking to Festus, but I'm sure at that point he pointed directly at Agrippa. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in, in some small way. It wasn't something that was hidden where no one could see it. Thousands in Jerusalem have come to Jesus at this point, tens of thousands throughout the Roman Empire and Syria and Galatia and Greece and Asia and all the way to Rome. I mean, Paul has been preaching the gospel for 15 years now. The gospel has been available since Jesus Christ died almost 30 years prior to this. The Jews who seek Paul's life, this is, Jesus is known And the Jews that seek Paul's life blame him for this rise in the acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. They believe that proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as Lord, is blasphemy. But Paul's appeal is to Scripture. He says, how could you possibly miss this in Scripture? If you know what the prophets say, you've got to understand what I'm sharing with you. And so you, you think to yourself, what is, how could it be so plain, and, and how could they miss it? What is it Paul is referring, what scripture is he referring to that's so plain that the Pharisees missed it? Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, Isaiah 53, 3 says this, He was despised 
and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Verse 5, but he was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as his sheep before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished, Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life, and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressions. See, for Paul, the Scriptures couldn't be more clear in their reference to this this living, dying, rising Messiah. This is such a clear description of who Jesus was. Perhaps not the Messiah exactly as the religious leaders wanted a Messiah, a political Messiah that would lead them from under the oppression of the Romans, but, but prophecy clearly fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Paul turns to Agrippa points to him as he talks to Festus, and then he turns to him, and he says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do! It would be easy, and as I've read this passage in the past, I've thought, this looks, like, this looks kind of like Jesus. Some of the things he did with the Pharisees. They'd ask him these trick questions, and man, he would always come back with something that would paint him in a corner, you know, that they couldn't get out of. And I look at this, and it looks like, I wonder, I've often thought, was Paul painting Agrippa into a corner by this appeal? You're a Jew. You, you know the law and the prophets. You know what they say, and Jesus fulfills them. How can you not see Jesus? How can you not acknowledge Jesus? Agrippa, you know what the prophets say. You believe the prophets. I know you do. But I don't think that's really what was taking place. That's not who Paul was. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Paul wasn't praying in his spirit all throughout his presentation to all of those gathered there that Agrippa's 
heart would open, that he would see clearly that that delineation of right and wrong is something that would dawn upon him, that he would see clearly the difference between good and evil, that, that he, Agrippa, would turn from the power of Satan to the power of God, that his sins might be forgiven, that his faith might be made whole. Can you imagine what it would have meant amongst the Jews for Herod Agrippa to become a follower of Jesus? Can, can you imagine, and I, 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 this occurred to me as I was preparing, and can you imagine the credibility that that could have lent the evangelistic cause? We, and, and we think that's the way our minds think today. Imagine the reach if some famous, influential person came to Christ. And we, we can go down a list of them historically, but we think today, if, what if Vladimir, Vladimir Putin, what if, what if Xi Jinping or Hafez al-Assad, or name a great ruler, or an influential ruler, or even a notorious ruler in the world today, what if they came to Christ? What if they gave their hearts to Christ and humbled themselves before God and turned from darkness to light and turned from the power of Satan to the power of God, turned from sin to righteousness? Man, that would be incredible. What would Russia be like if Vladimir Putin put his faith and trust? If some great leader of industry, if Warren Buffett came out and said, I've determined to be a follower of Jesus Christ, some great entertainer, some politician that never before has lived their life following Christ, what would, what would that mean for the cause of Christ and the advance of the kingdom? And what we know historically is, is it oftentimes hasn't meant a great deal. We've not seen entire nations changed. I mean, you can go back to Constantine and his faith in Christ, and it altered the nature of persecution of the church in some ways. And there were a lot of people that said they were followers of Jesus Christ, but that was just because Constantine had a lot of power and they wanted to remain in his favor. So I'm not sure it would have made any, any difference. I, I believe Paul wanted Agrippa to turn to Jesus because he knew God wanted Agrippa to humble himself and turn to Jesus. And that was his motivation. Agrippa was like every other person Paul had ever shared the gospel with. Paul shared the gospel with people because he wanted them to know the freedom of living in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He wanted them to know the fullness of life. And so as he shares with Agrippa, he's, he's, not, he's not looking to, to leverage a, a leader and a ruler because this is going to more greatly advance the kingdom. He's sharing once again with somebody that needs to know about Jesus. In verse 26, Agrippa responds to Paul. Do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Was it to be? However, the Spirit may have been convicting Agrippa. He was not prepared to follow Jesus. But, but understand this. God doesn't need the influential, the wealthy, the prominent. That's, God doesn't need those people to advance the kingdom. In fact, in, in Matthew 19, we're told that story of the, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and wants to know what what do I need to do to live a righteous life? And Jesus tells him to vest yourself of all your wealth and, and come and follow me. And the scripture says he went away sad 
because he, he couldn't do that. And Jesus told his disciples, it's, it's hard for the wealthy to enter, enter into the kingdom. Their, their wealth is, is deceptive. Wealth and influence make you feel important. It's, just, it's hard to be humble. And, and let me just say, I, you know, whether it's great wealth and great influence, or whether it's a little wealth and a little influence, you know, we're, there are not many big fish in big ponds, but there's a lot of big fish in little ponds, you know, and maybe, maybe you're in a small pond at work, or maybe you're in a small pond at school, or maybe, in, you know, there's some circle in which you travel that, that's that small pond that you're the big fish in, and you have influence among people, and maybe you have some degree of wealth. I, as I look across this crowd, I don't see anybody here that would raise their hand and go, oh yeah, I'm one of the wealthy, I'm one of the 1% or even one of the 10%, but, but hey, let's face it, you know, we all have a fair amount of wealth because we live in the United States, and you know, when people have wealth and abundance and some degree of influence, those things can be, and they can be so deceptive, they make it hard to be humble. It doesn't mean you can't be humble, but it makes it more difficult. Most rich and influential people, whether their influence and riches or wealth is great or small, think there's something special about themselves that led them to that place. And to humble themselves would be to become ordinary like everyone else. Agrippa was not prepared to humble himself and relinquish that which he, he placed great importance on. Paul was as bold as ever. Paul said, short time or not, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening me to, to me today may become what I am, a follower of Jesus Christ. Except for these chains. Except for my, my incarceration. You know, my, my desire for all of you is that you would become like I am. That you would become a follower of Jesus Christ. But therein lies the very fullness of life itself. You see, it's not just the the rich and influential who struggle to humble themselves. It's a common malady. God told that rich young man to sell all he owned and give his wealth away, but that, those were the things that had captured his heart. Paul's appeal to Herod was the same. I, I, I know you believe the prophets. Jesus is the one of whom I speak. I want you to become like me, a follower of Jesus Christ. But, man, his, his remaining wealth and influence was the thing that captured his heart. He was expelled by the Jews eventually, Herod Agrippa II, roughly, not too awfully long after this, this encounter here. He died in Rome of old age, fully aligned with the empire against the Jews. There is no record of Agrippa ever choosing for Jesus, and he was the last of the Herods to sit on any throne. He held on to those things, his wealth and his influence, to his deathbed, no doubt, without ever putting his faith in Jesus Christ. It's difficult for people, great or small, to let go of the world and choose for Jesus, to let go of their little wealth and their small influence, or their great wealth and their great influence. It's hard to be humble, to acknowledge that you're wrong at whatever point you disagree with God and that God is right and good and just in all of his ways. It's hard for people to confess that they are sinners 
and that they are in desperate need of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. So the question of the day is, have you relinquished everything? And there was Agrippa, there was that rich young man, there was a room full of people on whom the world had a hold of their hearts. And they were not prepared to hear anything about a Messiah that died and shed blood for them. They were not ordinary individuals. They were unwilling to humble themselves. Have you relinquished everything that has a hold on your heart in favor of Jesus? I think Agrippa could see the plain truth of what Paul said, of his, his appeal. In fact, Agrippa pronounced him innocent of any charges. Do you understand, do you see clearly from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you understand clearly from Scripture the gospel of Jesus Christ? That, that we all have sinned. We all have turned away from God and gone our own way. Do you understand that you're in need of the shed blood of Jesus Christ in order to have relationship with God, in order to have the distance between you and God bridged? That you're in need of the shed blood of Jesus. And will you let go? And this is the key question. Will you let go of everything that holds you back and follow him? You know, David Platt, if you've read any of his books or you've watched any of his videos, you've heard him preach, he has a saying and everybody that in his church, everybody that's familiar with him is, is familiar with his challenge to people to write God a blank check. And this is kind of how he gives metaphor to what it means to follow Jesus. It gives illustration to what it means to follow Jesus. And we talked about writing a blank check. He's not talking about writing a, would you give God a blank check and ha allow him access to everything that you have in the bank? He's talking about a blank check upon your life. Would you write God a blank check? And that's the call of Scripture whenever we follow Christ. That was the call to the rich young man. Divest yourself of everything, all of your wealth, but all of your relationships, everything that's important to you. Come follow me. Come sit around the campfire with me. Travel with me. Go where I go. Give your life to me. Write a blank check on your life. That was the appeal to the rich young man. That was the appeal to Agrippa. Ultimately, at the point that you acknowledge Jesus is Lord, if he's going to be Lord, he's got to be Lord of all your life. And so, how about you? Have you written the blank check? Are you willing to write the blank check? Are you willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and renounce all that holds you back and follow him from this point forward? Let me ask all of you to stand. If you've not, I can't think of a better time of the year, a better season of Thanksgiving, of the acknowledgement of God's great gift to us, of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I can't think of a better time, better season to decide, yes, yes, I will follow Jesus. I'd love to pray with you. We have counselors that will counsel with you. Christian, 
the truth of the matter is, Paul's statement to the, to the Christians at Ephesus is war of the spirit against the flesh. It's, it's not a one and done thing. You know, we, we got to write that blank check every day. Sometimes we have to write it multiple times a day because the world encroaches. Satan moves in and tempts, and sometimes we pick things up that we once relinquished to God. And so is there something in your life that God has been speaking to you, saying, let that go? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a progressive sanctification that God's taking you through, and you've already let go of a bunch of stuff. You wrote the blank check once, and man, God keeps taking withdrawals out of the bank account. You thought he had it empty, and he finds a couple of bucks in there and says, I want that too. And then now it's something new that God wants from you. Man, God is conforming you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something you once let go of that you pick back up now. And God's going, come on. You know there's no fullness in that. Relinquish that. If there's something God is speaking to you about, Christian, and saying, if you're going to follow me, you must be done with that. This is the moment in which to acknowledge you are a a true follower of Jesus Christ and renounce that thing that God's calling you to, to relinquish. God's here this morning once again.